want to make a couple comments. How many of you remember where you were on 9-11 when the planes hit? Wow. Everybody remembers that. How many of you remember when the pandemic hit? Just not long ago. Okay. Shut down for two weeks. That's what they said. You know, there are some things that affect our national consciousness. Some, some, some national events that hit us as a people. And it's very important that at that time in history, in these times, that, that we gather together as people and, and, and refocus our attention on God. You know, we've got, people are all over the map on everything you can imagine from how to treat the pandemic to how we meet, what we do. We're divided by state, we're divided by by people groups and party we're just divided in so many ways and it's critical that we be united as believers in Jesus Christ under the banner of Jesus Christ so I just want to encourage you that in the, in spite of all the things and and this this country's been through a lot of stuff over the years it's been around for about 240 years 250 years um, I was just reading about when Solomon built the temple I was just reading about that this morning in my devotions Israel had been around about 430 years. So, you know, we're 240. We're not very old as a nation. But uh, making sure that we continue to focus um, on the fact that our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and, and he's the Lord of history. I know that we, uh, you have all these people out there saying this is the, uh, the Antichrist must be coming here, the mark of the beast, all this stuff. Um, I'm, in a couple of weeks, I may just um, take some time to talk about that more in depth, but... Um, no matter where we are in history, I don't think we're there yet, obviously, but, um, but we know how the story ends. We look at the book of Revelation, and Jesus comes back. He raptures the church and, and uh, sets up his kingdom for a thousand years, and, uh, and uh, then we get to be with God for the rest of eternity. So, so when you complain about what's happening in the world, just remember it all went, ends good. Okay, It's got a good ending, just so, so you know. I, just, I don't know why I said that today, but I felt I needed to. How many of you like to be known of as different? You don't have to raise your hand. Or odd? Okay, I actually had a couple of honest people back there. You like to be known as being out of the mainstream. I would venture to guess that although most of us want to be unique, most of us probably would want to fit in. We don't want to be too different. The pressure in most of our world is for conformity or sameness. We wear the same style of clothes. We wear Packer sweatshirts on game days, unless you're a Lions fan or a Viking fan, or Seahawks, go Seahawks. Here we go. We have similar types of hairstyles or colors of hair. Certain colors are in for clothes and cars and even interior decorating. Remember those avocado appliances? Oh, yeah, I know. Some of you remember. Who would think that skinny jeans would give way to bell bottoms? And mini skirts to full-length dresses. And then it goes back and forth. I mean, every, every few years it goes back. Most of us would like to at least be close to conformity, not too odd, not too different. And the question is, how does being a Christian or being a follower of Jesus fit 
into conformity or being different? Are we different or are we just like everybody else? And far more important, does this differentiation include things of more important value than clothes, cars, entertainment, activities, and appearances? Today we're going to begin a series on the Sermon on the Mount. And this is a compilation of the teachings of Jesus that are recorded in the book of Matthew. And it's called this because of the location where Jesus gave this. It was a a mountainside above the Sea of Galilee in Israel. Now, we were in Israel a few years back, and I took some pictures of the Sea of Galilee. This This is the mountain where he spoke. You can see the incredible scenery. That's the Sea of Galilee. Next slide. See, it says Mount of Beatitudes. That's why we went up there, Mount of Beatitudes. Another picture. It's a, it was incredibly blue. Can't see it as well on here. Next slide. There you can see one single boat on the Sea of Galilee, the mountainside. Next slide. That's how beautiful it is on that mountainside. Next slide. Oh, that's the Dead Sea. Get that up. Sorry, I had to do that. If you've never been to Israel, that's worth doing. You just, it's, there's so much salt in the Dead Sea, you actually do float. I had no flotation device, it was just me. Okay, anyway. Well, over the next 12 weeks, we will discover that there are some radical differences outlined by Jesus himself when we actually follow him. When we follow Jesus, we will stand out as different from those around us. Now, Jesus begins his teaching with a different, very different view of happiness. It's, it's listed, or it's called blessedness. He calls it blessedness, or joy is another term for it. Blessed are, it's called the Beatitudes. And there are eight Beatitudes as we start this teaching, eight of them. And we're going to begin today by looking at different, different. And if you turn with me to Matthew 5, it's page 785 in the Bible in the rack in front of you. Matthew 5, we're going to just read the first 12 verses as we start this series today. Now, when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of the righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in this same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. As we start this series, I want to talk about some underlying principles that, that undergird this passage and this, this particular part of the Sermon on the Mount. The four underlying principles that we're going to look at is letter A, number one, we are a counterculture, not a subculture. We are a counterculture, not a subculture. What does that mean? First, let's define culture. Let's define culture. We don't have time to get this, break it down 
in depth, but I think that we'll get the idea of what it is. A culture was defined by Dr. Miriam Adney, who is a professor at Seattle Pacific University, and she writes, a culture is a pattern of meanings. It's a pattern of meanings that are assigned to behaviors, beliefs, and things by members of society. In other words, a pattern of meanings that are assigned to behaviors, beliefs, and things by members of a society. And when we look at cultures in America, we find there are a lot of differences between people groups or cultures. Values, attitudes, lifestyles, priorities, moral values. There are differences in how people act and react in different settings. Now, some of us are not very aware of our culture or other cultures. Uh, Culture has been compared to the water in which fish swim. They're surrounded by it, they, they move in it, they live in it, they inhabit it, they eat in it, they do everything in the water. But they're not really aware of the water, they just move in it, okay? And many of us are, it's like we're in a pool of culture and we're not aware of the different, we're just aware that we live and breathe and work within this framework of culture. Different cultures are like different pools. Now, a subculture, let's define a subculture. Subculture is a small group in the context of the whole. A subculture maintains certain identity features, but eventually will go with the flow. Now, let me, let me illustrate that. Let's talk about European immigration. Many groups of immigrants immigrated to the United States in, in the 18 and 1900s. There are groups of Italians and Irish and Norwegians and Germans and Swedes and English. And from what I know about Northwest Wisconsin, most of the immigrants that came and settled in Northwest Wisconsin were Norwegians and Swedes and Germans. Okay? That was just kind of the general context. And so if you grew up in Northwest Wisconsin, typically you'll probably be from one of those subcultures. And each group, as they came and settled, carried how they viewed life, how they interacted, what they did for a living, what they ate, their religious affiliations, all were part of this subculture. Subculture. I grew up in a Norwegian subculture born in Japan, so I'm really messed up. But, but the Norwegian culture it was part of what we ate, what we did, how we celebrated Christmas. It was just part of the, the Norwegian heritage. Now, more recent immigrations came from Asia, particularly uh, in this particular area, the Hmong people. Uh, we have uh, people that came from Korea, J Japan, Cambodians, Vietnamese, Filipinos, and from India. Then we had Hispanics from Central America, South America, and Mexico. Then uh, immigration groups from Af the Africans and Muslims. Most immigrants, though not all, as they move into this, they, they accept our standard of living and our behavior. Uh, dress in Western clothes, go to our public schools and universities, learn our language, our customs, our pop culture, drive in our freeways. In other words, they assimilate typically and adapt. Now, one of the fortunate things about cultures is they brought with them their own ethnic foods. And of course, that has enriched all of our lives. And I'm not talking about fake Italian or fake this. We're talking about authentic types of ethnic foods. Some, as you know, and you see them here and there, uh, some of the cultures maintained a strict separation. Uh, they wear their traditional garb. They continue to celebrate their customs exclusively. And there are, there are groups not too far from here, Amish communities that still practice their culture the way they practiced it centuries ago. 
Um, you have some Muslim groups that still practice exactly how they, uh, they had it back in the old country. But virtually all ethnic groups tend to form their own subculture unique to them. And as we look at subcultures and we look at uh, how we're raised in those things, usually by the second or third generation, they pretty much go with the flow and become more mainstream. And so we end up with, with people we would call in cultures European-American or Native American, African-American, Asian-American, Hispanic-American. And all of this has combined in this unique country that we call the United States of America to become a beautiful multicultural mosaic, or some call it a salad, called the United States of America. Now, those are subcultures, and everywhere you go, you may go into a different part of the city or neighborhood and see different subcultures. Then we have counterculture. Counterculture. Counter means to go against the flow, against the mainstream. And rather than melting in, they stand out. A counterculture wants to emphasize the differences between their culture and the culture they're in. These people are typically trying to change the culture. They're not trying to fit in. They're trying to stand out. Trying to change the culture to their values, their attitudes, their lifestyles, or their priorities. They're usually committed to being a change agent. Different. They want to be different. Okay? That's a counterculture. Now, if we as Christians are just a subculture... We go with the flow and we just try to fit in. If we're a subculture, we assimilate all the values and attributes of the culture around us. There's essentially no difference between Christians and everybody else. If we're a counterculture, we go against the flow, try to be different, emphasize the differences, try to change, make change, and actually be the change. So first, Christians, followers of Jesus, are called to be a counterculture, not a subculture. Okay? The second principle, it's about internals, not externals. It's about internals, not externals. Now, wait a minute. You just talked about all these external, observable, cultural pieces. Now you say that's not it? What do I mean? This counterculture... The one Jesus brought that we are part of is called the kingdom of God. Some places it calls the kingdom of heaven, but kingdom of God. Where God is the king, we are his subjects. But it's an internal kingdom. It's a, it's a heart kingdom. That's what the, the Jews didn't, the disciples didn't realize. Jesus came and he said, I'm going to set up my kingdom. And they said, well, take over the government. Come on. No, he said, it's a kingdom in the heart's it transcends all of that. It's a, it's a kingdom of God. It's a heart kingdom. It's inside of us. And we may look like everyone else. We may wear the same style of clothes, live in the same kinds of houses, drive the same kinds of cars, attend the same schools, work in the same offices, shop at the same stores. Externally, we are not different in appearances. The differences are in the inside. We don't become a counterculture by making differences on the outside. The differences on the inside show on the outside. But the differences are on the inside. We become a counterculture from the inside out. Everybody with me? Okay. 
See me going, I didn't come to get a sociological lecture this morning. I'm sorry. What happens is Jesus changes our heart, places a new spirit within us, his Holy Spirit, and we are changed inside out. It happens on the inside. And thirdly, let her see, it's about being then doing. It's about being then doing. Christianity is first about being, then doing. We get it backwards. We, we do to please God. We do to look God good. We do to follow the Ten Commandments. We do to follow the Golden Rule. Well, God first wants us to be, then the doing will follow. Now, we have, we have a lot to do in our world with, with image. Image. All advertisements, TV, internet, billboards, etc., attempt to put an image in your mind. If the company is going to get you to buy their product, wear their athletic shoes, drink their beverage, drive their cars, use their phone or their computer, they appeal to the external. They appeal to the image. So image is always out there. And that's what we look for. Now, in the Old Testament, there's a very significant passage of Scripture where Saul was the king of Israel. He's the first king of Israel, and God needed to replace him. So he talked to the prophet Samuel and said, I want you to find a king and go to the house of Jesse. There's a guy who has a, a bunch of sons, and one of those sons is going to be the king. And so, so Jesse had all of his sons walk in front of Samuel for examination. He looked at all of them, and every one of the sons had the image. They all looked great on the outside. God said, I've not chosen any one of those. None of them are qualified. And God said this, made this statement, very profound. Man looks on the outward appearances. God looks at the heart. Man looks at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. Man looks at the image, the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. And God chose David because he was a man after God's heart. Being precedes doing. Today, image is everything. For Jesus, no, not so much. It's about being, and then it's doing. Then we get to the fourth principle. It's impossible, not possible. It's impossible, not possible. Say, what? Life just got harder? We just got through COVID. You're giving us some impossible thing. What are we going to do? Life is, yeah, is it harder? Well, what Jesus outlines in this treatise are the ethics of the kingdom of God. And they are impossible to keep in human strength. It's impossible to live out these kingdom principles in human strength, in our own strength. That's why we need God. We need God. So Jesus will lay out some impossibles. Then he will offer the power to make them possible. Possible. So, the principles of the Sermon on the Mount. Number one, we're a counterculture, not a subculture. It's about internals, not externals. It's about being, then doing. It's impossible, not possible. Well, let's move on to the word blessed. Blessed. Blessed or blessed equals true joy. True joy. We have a lot of ideas of what will make us happy. Happy is different than joy. Max Lucado tells a story of Robert Reed. 
in his book, Applause of Heaven. Robert said, I have everything I need for joy. His hands are twisted and his feet are useless. He can't bathe himself. He can't feed himself. He can't brush his teeth, comb his hair. His shirts are held together by strips of Velcro. His speech drags out like a worn-out audio cassette. If you, if you don't know what that is, look it up on the Internet when you get home. <laughs> Robert has cerebral palsy. And the disease keeps him from driving a car, riding a bike, going for a walk. But it didn't keep him from graduating from high school or graduating from Abilene Christian University with a degree in Latin. It didn't keep him from teaching at a junior college in St. Louis. And it didn't prevent him from becoming a missionary in Portugal. He moved to Lisbon alone in 1972. He rented a hotel room, began studying Portuguese, found a restaurant owner who would feed him after the rush hour, and a tutor who would instruct him in the language. Then he stationed himself every single day in a park where he distributed brochures about Jesus Christ. Over a six-year period, he saw over 70 people, persons, come to faith in Jesus Christ, one of whom became his wife, named Rosa. Wow. Wow. Max writes, I heard Robert speak recently. I watched other men carry him in his wheelchair onto the platform. I watched them lay a Bible on his lap. I watched his stiff fingers force open the pages. And I watched people in the audience wipe tears of admiration from their faces. Robert could have asked for sympathy. But he did just the opposite. He held his bent hand up in the air and boasted, I have everything I need for joy. I have everything I need for joy. His shirts are held together by Velcro, but his life is held together by joy. You know, the concept of joy runs entirely counter to what we count as joy. But as we approach this blessedness, this joy, think of it in terms of only what God can bring supernaturally. This is counter to what we call joy, and so does Jesus' sermons. Sermon. Now, we're going to look at eight characteristics of those who live surrendered to Jesus. These are not eight character traits that are divided up equally between Christians, but eight characteristics that God seeks to develop in each and every one of us to make us different, to make us different. We're going to look at just two of them today. First one, number Roman numeral three, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, what does poor in spirit mean? Being poor in spirit has nothing to do with economics. Jesus' kingdom was about being. It was about the internal. And the blessings of the kingdom of God are not primarily economic advantage. And no matter what the American dream is and how much God has blessed this material, materially, that's not what this is about. And we find two extremes in opinions about poverty or wealth. If one, one is, says if, to, if you're going to be truly spiritual, you have to be very poor. Okay? That's the one none of us like. Okay? And then the other one is if one is truly spiritual, he'll be very wealthy. Yeah. Everybody goes, yeah, we like that one. But the kingdom of God transcends all this nonsense and all this noise about poverty and wealth. A person may be poor, a person may be wealthy, but is he poor in 
spirit. To be poor in spirit means to acknowledge our spiritual poverty, our spiritual bankruptcy before God. It's seeing an accurate picture of our true spiritual state without God. In Romans 3, it's a passage we don't like very much, 10 to 12, it says, As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good. It's an indictment of human nature that we are all sinners. We are all sinners and we deserve God's punishment. Now, good news is we're all, we all start at the same place, okay? We're on the same boat. We're all in the same place. No room for arrogance or pride or anything. We are all in that place. We deserve God's punishment. That's why Jesus came to deliver us from punishment to forgive our sins. And many people that Jesus was talking to here had religion. They had Morality. They had this outward goodness. You can imagine all these people. They were all Jews. They, they grew up in Judaism. And, and here they are in this mountainside in Galilee to come and hear this teacher. And they were all religious people. They were nice people. They just didn't think they needed God. I, I, I think of the term. One of the things that we heard when we came to Wisconsin. We go over to Minnesota once. And we hear... And once in a while, we go over to Minneapolis or other places. We hear this term, Minnesota nice. Minnesota, how many of you love that term? How many of you hate that term? I'd, I'd say, let's go Wisconsin nice. Okay. But what do they mean by Minnesota nice? And I thought, what does that mean? Minnesota, you see it on t-shirts and Minnesota nice. It's a phrase we hear. It means they're polite, non-offensive. They treat others right with respect, etc. They're just nice people. And... Many times, nice people don't think they need God. How many of us today really think we need God? We may have been raised with religion, grown up in the church. We're not as good as some, but we're, we're better than most. We want enough of God to get us through tough time and answer prayers, and we need answered prayer. Especially when we're driving to the mall, we need that parking space close to the store. We earn most everything today. And we think, I must have earned some good of this life that I have. No, we, we didn't. We really didn't. Many times we do not understand our true need for God. We don't really understand grace. Our culture has slogans like, there's no such thing as a free lunch. You get what you deserve. You want money, work for it. You want love, earn it. You want mercy, show you deserve it. Do unto others before they do unto you. Oh, that's, that's different. That's supposed to be a different one. Brendan Manning in the Ragamuffin Gospel writes, we think our spirituality begins with self. We think it begins with self, not with God. Personal responsibility has replaced personal response. We talk about acquiring virtue as if it were a skill that can be attained like good handwriting or a well-grooved golf swing. The emphasis is on what I do rather than on what God is doing. And the problem is that that approach brings no joy, only empty accolades and self-congratulations. We think we can do it on our own. We think we can do it on our own. He writes, 
Our approach to the Christian life is as absurd as the enthusiastic young man who had just received his plumber's license. And he was taken to see Niagara Falls. He studied Niagara Falls for a minute and then said, I think I can fix this. I put that in just for Byron. Where's Byron? (laughs) Byron's plumber extraordinaire, retired, but did that. As long as we can do it, we're not poor in spirit. We will never depend on God. We will never be truly happy or blessed. The poor in spirit, it says, the poor in spirit to them belongs the kingdom of heaven. All of the Beatitudes come back to this first one because in this we admit need, that we actually need God. We need God. The book of Revelation, John writes to a church in Revelation 3, 15 to 17. He said, I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Wow. Wow. Strong words. Strong words. You know, we can... We can do church. We can do church without God. But we will never be the church without God. As long as we think we can do something to please God and earn his acceptance, I do not trust totally because I do not need totally. Let me say that again. I do not trust totally because I do not need totally. Blessed are the poor in spirit. The kingdom of God is theirs. Verse 4, the next one, says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are or happy are those who are sorrowful for their own failures and sins. Those who mourn the loss of their innocence, their righteousness, their self-respect. Now, this is not the sorrow of bereavement or the loss of a loved one. But it's the sorrow of repentance. John Stott writes, confession is one thing, contrition is another. This is the sorrow of repentance. Now Judy and I have two two children, and much like your children growing up, I'm sure you experienced the same kinds of things. They had disagreements and they fought on occasion. And when they were confronted to reconcile, we'd say, Say you're sorry, will you forgive me? And you say, I forgive you. Okay, that was our, we got to reconcile these these conflicts. Sometimes the I'm sorry, I forgive you was said grudgingly, not in earnest. They were just saying it out of obedience, not from the heart. I'm sorry, but there was no sorrow. There was no true contrition. How many of you have ever done that? Observed it, anybody? Make sure, okay. Make sure we're on the same page. Now, many today confess their sins to God because they know it's the right thing to do. Oh, I sin. I've I got to confess to God. But there's no sorrow or no true repentance. I, I, I grew up in a, in a denomination in a church that really emphasized the, the second coming of Jesus, which is awesome, end times, etc. And 
one of the things that we felt we had to do was make sure that at all times we had all our sin confessed because if Jesus came back and I didn't, hadn't confessed that, I wouldn't make it to heaven. How many of you had that same experience? Okay, so if something happened, there was one time I came home and nobody was home. I thought the rapture had happened. I was devastated. It hadn't, but I thought, oh no, did I have sin? I was seven. So, <laughs> but that was one of those things that you have. But growing up afraid, I'd be the last person to try to judge whether a person is truly sorry or not. We can only see the outside. But God sees the heart. God knows if we confess but don't repent. And he says, blessed or happy are those that mourn are truly sorry for they will be comforted. They will be comforted. 1 John 1, 1.9, we've talked about if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. We talked about spiritual breathing. The fact that when we confess our sins, it's like breathing out the old carbon dioxide and then appropriating the forgiveness is like breathing in clean oxygen. And many of us have to do this spiritual breathing, confession and appropriation many times a day. And the question is, do we appropriate that forgiveness? Are we truly sorry? There's nothing that gives greater joy and release and comfort than to know we've been forgiven. We've been forgiven. Christianity begins with a sense of sin. Very unpopular concept today. Sin. It begins with sense of sin. My sin. We have to own it. No person can repent unless they are sorry for their sins. So often, we have to have our eyes open to what sin is and what it does then we can confess and repent. Sorrow for sin. And it is the one, is the people that, that are truly sorry for the sin and confess it, that are comforted. Comforted. Now, when my daughters were little and they fell and skinned their knee, they cried out for dad and mom. Now, if they needed just comfort, they went to mom. If they needed medical attention, they came to me. I was the Band-Aid guy, okay? So I, it was always, it was like if they just needed comfort, but if they were bleeding, hey, it was me. But if they skinned their knee and fell, they didn't need a lecture on how not to fall off the bike. Or next time, fall in the grass instead of the cement. They didn't need a lecture from me. They didn't need a warning about be more careful next time. All they needed was comfort. Comfort. They knew they fell. They knew they hurt themselves. They knew they had failed. All they needed was comfort. When we come to our Heavenly Father, if we know we fell, if we know we hurt, if we know we failed or sinned, all we need is comfort. We just need comfort from our Father. And God is there to comfort you to comfort you. Max Lucado writes, if I know that one of the privileges of fatherhood is to comfort a child, why am I so reluctant to let my heavenly father comfort me? Why do I think he wouldn't want to hear about my problems? They're puny compared to the starving in India. Why do I think he's too busy for me? He's got a whole universe to worry about. 
Why do I think he's tired of hearing the same old stuff? Why do I think he groans when he sees me coming? Why do I think he consults his list when I ask for forgiveness and says, don't you think you're going to the well a few many times on this one? Why do I not take him seriously when he questions if you are like the birds of the air, the grass of the fields, they don't worry. Why do you worry? And if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give gifts to those who ask him? Why don't I let my Father do for me what I'm more than willing to do for my children? He says, being a parent is better than a course on theology. Being a father is teaching me that when I'm criticized, injured, or afraid, there is a father who is ready to comfort me. There is a father who will hold me until I'm better. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. It's the beginning of being a disciple. Seeing our need, mourning for our sins, allowing God to forgive us, to comfort us, then we can be truly blessed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Jesus revealed to us who we are and who his Father is. And I pray that as we continue to look at what you are teaching us that we would realize how blessed we are. And I pray, Lord, this morning, if there are those here this morning that, that need to confess sins or those that need to be comforted, I just pray that you would be with them and that, God, we would believe that you can and will. And we give you the glory in Jesus' name. Let's stand, shall we?